Hello, and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Cindy McMahon, who is the new public educator for Guelph and Wellington Women in Crisis. Now, we were originally supposed to be joined by Professor Myrna Dawson from the University of Guelph. She manages the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability. Unfortunately, though, she had a personal matter arise quite suddenly on Monday uh, and couldn't join us. So we're very lucky to be joined on very short notice by Cindy McMahon instead. Now, you may be wondering why. Well, look at the calendar. Tuesday marks the National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. It is also the 33rd anniversary of what's typically referred to as the Montreal Massacre. On December 6, 1989, a man walked into L'Ecole Polytechnique in Montreal. He entered a mechanical engineering class. He separated the men from the women and ordered the men to leave before shooting the nine women left behind with a Ruger Mini-14 semi-automatic rifle. He ended up killing six of them, and then he went through the corridors and killed another eight women before dying by suicide. And in terms of public displays of gender-based violence, this is yet to be matched. And while it's helped cast an annual spotlight on violence against women, there's still at least one woman who is killed every six days by an intimate partner. So where do we stand now on gender-based violence? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. Now that stat I just mentioned was produced in the annual report this year by the Canadian Femicide Observatory for Justice and Accountability, and it paints a critical reminder that gender-based violence happens all the time, and it doesn't always happen in the public eye. At the same time, Despite an increase in public awareness and education, there has been a 26% increase in the number of women killed since before the pandemic, which is another stat from the observatory. Now, why is that? Well, it's a lot of the same pressures we've all been facing. It's pandemic stressors, economic uncertainty, housing affordability. Yes, it's become easier to ask for help, but it's also become harder to give people that help. So as we approach the 33rd anniversary of the Montreal Massacre, many community and advocacy groups are looking for ways to turn the tide. Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis and Zonta Guelph are promoting ways to act locally with their 16 Days, 16 Voices campaign, which, among other things, casts Market Square in purple for the next two weeks. The White Ribbon campaign has their I Knew All Along campaign, which puts the fight against gender-based violence into the Court of Canadian Men, and encourages them to combat gender-based aggressions that stem from unhealthy masculinities normalized in our society. As for the Guelph Politicast, we're going to talk to Cindy McMahon. McMahon joins us on this week's edition of the Guelph Politicast to talk about the lessons of the Montreal Massacre, whether that's the best way to describe the events of December 6, 1989, and whether we've yet to develop the language to really talk about acts of mass gender-based violence. We will also talk about the local issues that make a big difference in the fight, the struggle to get resources, and how a perfect storm of issues are putting real pressure on services like women in crisis. And finally, we will discuss the need to focus on gender-based violence that happens in private, deconstructing the gender norms, and what everyone, especially men, can do to make this a safer world for everyone. So I caught up with Cindy McMahon earlier this week via Zoom. Cindy McMahon, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. 
and I just want to say on the record, because I already thank you profusely in the pre-show. Um, <laughs> thank you for stepping in on short notice. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I'm so glad it worked out. Good. So oh, if you're glad, I imagine how glad I am. But um, <laughs> enough frivolity, because we're here to talk about serious things. And this is a, kind of a philosophical, philosophical question I wanted to start off with, because um, I've been thinking a lot about this. And I could be... I could be off the mark here, but when we're talking about the the event the events of December 6, 1989, and I know for years we've called it the Montreal Massacre, but when I heard somebody say that at the 16 voice 16 days 16 voices event the other night, my thought was like it it sounds so salacious. It sounds like you know, you hear the word massacre, it it just it there's something about it that feels kind of off and I'm I'm again, this is a thought I've had for a while, but you know, is there a different way we should be calling what happened at like called polytechnique? Is, is there a different, like better descriptor that doesn't feel quite as sort of icky, I guess, in your imagination? Yeah. I, I, I guess my first thought is to, is to ask you, what is it about that word that you find sort of off-putting? Hmm. Well, is it just that it's salacious or it, it feels like because when you hear massacre, you know, I'm I'm a movie guy. So I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, hmm. you know, just like like or, or like it's kind of like a gross headline in like a tabloid like massacre at diner or or something. It, and it it just the, the underlying psychology of why that person murdered those women mm-hmm. feels a bit more. Feels a bit bigger than just sort of writing it off. Or, or identifying it by the act of violence, which it was a massacre, but it mm-hmm. just like it just feels I don't know it just feels like a bit I want to say over the top to say to use the words Montreal massacre. You know, it sounds like a bad movie title. Yeah, I I, I hear what you're saying, and I I wouldn't necessarily think it's you know kind of over the top to call it a massacre. You know, given that you know, 14 women were killed and, and a number of other people were uh, were injured. Mm. But I wonder if what you're picking up on is just you know, sort of the limits of the language that we have mm-hmm. to talk about events of this scope um, as they pertain to, you know, s- specific kinds of oppression like gender, right? right. Um, where we just don't have a lot of language to discuss, you know, the ways in which violence is visited upon like women and gender diverse people. I mean, it took a while before we were even really calling this event a femicide, right? Right. Because in the media at first, there was so much attention on, you know, this shooter's mental health and how, you know, this was just like such an aberration. And, you know, we weren't really even publicly discussing the ways in which it was targeted against women because there were women in this engineering program. And right. so I, I think it's maybe just a mark of how our language is evolving slowly to try and capture the nuances of some of these events. You know, and it, it, as we're talking too, I'm just thinking of the recent mass shooting at the Pulse uh, nightclub in Florida, the even more recent shooting in, at Club Q in, in Colorado. We don't call that like the Club Q massacre. Mm-hmm. Um, although it, it's also kind of a, a similar case of, of like discriminatory violence. Somebody went in there to shoot and kill um, yes. queer people. Yep. So I guess yeah. that that's a that's a that's a point where things kind of have changed. We don't use that kind of salacious language to talk about those events. Yeah, and I wonder if too there are some limitations there because we tend to call those things, you know, like a 
like a shooting or right. a mass shooting or something like that, which, you know, I think is a, is, is a particularly American term that comes out of the issues that they have with gun violence. Um, so I think that's sort of reflected in that language, but there isn't, you know, that, that kind of distinction between, you know, a shooting that is targeted against, you know, the LGBTQ plus community and, you know, a mass shooting that happens in a school. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think I think that might be, you know, some something for us to kind of reflect on and and to work on is how do we want to frame these issues such that we can avoid that kind of salaciousness, but also really talk about the ways in which um, violence is is targeted against particular groups. Right. Even shooting, just calling it a shooting seems clinical because any any yes. any time a gun is fired as a shooting, you can go it to the technically a go, shooting, go to the gun range. It's a shooting. Yes, um, yes. Even though no one's killed. Yeah. Well, I, I thank you for indulging me on that. Um, looking to, and, you know, some of these thoughts again came out of the, the event the other night and, and Dominique O'Rourke, who is um, a board six city councilor talked to, you know, tied the issues of, of, you know, gender-based violence, domestic violence to like housing affordability and also to, and I, I hate that I never didn't think of this before, but she also tied it to hotels. And we've talked a lot about, hotels in Guelph in terms of like if we're losing hotel rooms how that affects our economic development and how that affects our tourism development but it also affects like places we can house people temporarily till they get a situation and of course that that's very much a part of you know survivors of domestic violence mm -hmm. yeah that I mean that's that's just so aggressively true I mean housing is the big issue in in Guelph, you know, not just for us, but for our our community partners in many different sectors, um, and we are in in our work just really hard hit by that lack of affordable housing because our shelter is always full, um, and it's taking a lot longer for people to be able to move on from the shelter because there just isn't any place for them to go. Right. So it creates such an issue because then when new people are calling us looking for shelter. Uh, they can't find it because we don't have any beds, right? Like we're not we're not about to kick people out of the shelter so that new folks can come in. Um, and that's not, you know, it's it's not acceptable that there aren't any beds, but but here we are. And it's it's incredibly frustrating. Um, first and foremost, obviously, obviously for the, you know, the women who are trying to find shelter. It's also, I think, very frustrating for our community partners when they're trying to keep their own clients safe and referring them to us. Um, it's very frustrating for our counselors as well, who want very much to be able to um, afford people an option for safe housing. And we just can't, we just can't do it. Um, and, and we often end up having to counsel women to shelter in place because it's safer for them to stay at home a lot of the time than it is to be on the street. Um, which right. I think is is just a mark of how of how dire the housing situation has become. Which is, uh, you know, but at that because at that point you're not making a calculation between what's safe and what's not safe. You're making a calculation between what is more dangerous. Yes. For that person. Yeah. What is the least bad of the bad? Least bad. That that's right. Yes. Yeah. It's it's exactly that. And I think you know as as long as we are you know treating houses as you know, in investments, as long as we're financializing them, as long as we're, you know, sort of relying on 
market forces to somehow like, create a situation where everybody has, you know, a, a place where they can, you know, be safe and, and thrive. I think as long as we're sort of locked into that system and not thinking about housing as a fundamental right upon which many other fundamental human rights depend, then I, I think we're going to stay locked in this system, right? Right. And, and we we tend to frame these things as kind of wholly economic matters. And I don't want to get into like the provincial yeah. legislation and things like that while talking yes. to you, obviously. But I mean, that legislation almost is entirely framed as a matter of sort of supply economics. Um, and mm-hmm. in, in, in a sense, though, this is also an economic issue that, Absolutely. you know, with with the economics comes security. And, yeah. um, you know, there, there are a whole manner of considerations, not just, you know, where survivors of domestic violence can live but like how can they can access you know food and uh financial support job support uh yes. it, it's it's housing's one part of the issue mm-hmm. yeah and and i would say it is the biggest part of of the issue but you're right in that you know money equals options right and you know increasingly there are, there just is an enormous gap between people who have options and people who don't. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the present circumstances, you you know, you're talking about how every bed is, is full right now. Is that a matter of, I I guess, is that a matter of like how open people are and, and willing to, you know, report when they have, been victimized is that a matter of like the pandemic is and and creating like limited supply is this a matter of just and maybe it's always just been that way is like can we point to like certain conditions right now that are kind of putting particular stress on on you and other service providers yeah i i think you've picked up on on um a few of the really big ones you know pandemic restrictions on um on congregate settings is definitely one. Um, that's something that we're still, you know, kind of having to uh, having to abide by, and and also, I think both that, you know, domestic violence rates are on the rise um, in Canada and in Ontario, and also that you know people do feel a little bit more open about coming forward and and seeking shelter and and talking about it. And that last part is is great, right? That's real progress. We want that to happen. Um, the flip side of that, of course, is that you know we in no way you know have kind of systemically prepared to meaningfully help people transition away from violence when they've you know come forward and and you know. And, and wanted to to transition away. And that, that's another part of this I wanted to ask about because it puts more pressure on you in a sense. It's good that more people are seeking help, yes. but it put, puts pressure yes. on you. But then there's kind of this feedback look, loop where you know someone has come out and said, I'm seeking help. And then discovering that maybe the services are, are themselves struggling. And that does that put a risk that maybe someone just says, oh, well, what's the point in seeking help if it's so hard to find help? Absolutely. Yes, that is that is absolutely a risk. Um, it's, as, as I said, incredibly frustrating for people. Um, it is incredibly risky for people to come forward about abuse uh, when they are experiencing it. It is really emotionally exhausting for people to reach out for help. And if they do reach out, you know, and, and then there's nothing there 
for them, then it's it's easy to see why why people are are discouraged and why they might you know kind of despair that that there is you know a, a possibility for them to to transition to something that might be safer for them. And I think that that's especially true when we think about our indigenous populations, when we think about our black and racialized populations, when we think about queer and trans populations. You know, to reach out to services when there are such barriers to accessing services, and then to have those services be in a position where they're so underfunded and when they're struggling so much they can't give people the support they would like to give um, it just creates you know a, a system where I think people just feel you know pretty yeah pretty despairing yeah so looking at it at the other side then in terms of we we were talking about these things more it's more open mm-hmm. people are recognizing when they need to get help service mm-hmm. industries are trying to match that need mm-hmm. hitting the wall with with their limited resources then that brings us to sort of the government levels and and is is there a like is are we are we close to having some sort of like equal understanding from whatever level of government um that these services need increased support i mean again just like we're going to have december 6th there's going to be vigils all around the country a lot of those vigils are going to attract government leaders who feel who yeah perhaps feel personally uh, important that it be there, but then it's December 7th and, you know, something else is in the news or there's something coming to a a government house meeting that, that pulls their attention away, I I guess. Um, How, how, how do the the things that are sort of happening on your level translate into getting better addressed from the people who can help you address them? Well, I sure wish I had an answer to that because I feel like we could be if we could, if we could crack that code, mm-hmm. uh, then we'd all be in in a much better position. Um, I think, you know, trying to trying to attain like really sustained investment from all levels of government is of course, an enormous challenge. One thing I'm sort of heartened by is the Renfrew coroner's inquest that happened over the summer, um, which was an inquest in uh, Renfrew County into the deaths of um, Carol Calton, Anastasia Kuzik, and Natalie Warmerdam, um, who were killed by a a former um, partner. And the jury came back, the coroner's jury came back with 86 recommendations about how, you know, tragedies like this could be prevented in the future. Um, And the first thing on their list was, you know, to have all levels of government declare uh, intimate partner violence as an epidemic. And they called for sustained annualized funding for domestic violence, you know, centers and, and shelters and organizations that provide services to people who are struggling with violence. And so my hope is that, you know, having having a document like this which is the result of so much research and information gathering and and soul searching on the part of a community that, you know, was faced with, you know, a a terrible but preventable tragedy um, that, you know, kind of having this document in hand might enable us to, you know, sort of better address all levels of government and say, Mm -hmm. you know, like here, here we have this this series of recommendations about how we can avoid these things in future. So if we're serious about tackling this problem, maybe we should look at these recommendations. I do wonder about whether that will have any bearing on, I I think we're in the process now of waiting for a a report about the events in Nova Scotia in 2020, which Mm -hmm. 
I mean, it's it's phrased as a terrible tragedy, which of course it is, but we don't often phrase that as the fact that it started with an act of domestic violence. Yes. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really um, part and parcel of that issue of framing that we were talking about earlier, right? Like our reluctance to name um, intimate partner violence, our reluctance to name femicide when it happens, um, and our reluctance to really, you know, hold men accountable when they are engaging um, in these sort of targeted acts against, you know, women and gender diverse people. That's a good segue to talk about um, what men can do. Uh, the White Ribbon campaign came out this week with uh, their their campaign for for sixteen uh, days, sixteen voices, which is, I guess, putting the onus on men. Um, it, it's called "I I knew all along," which is essentially like men understand. Or men should sort of inherently understand when they're being, you know, I guess, courting gender-based violence, all the conditions that end up leading to gender-based violence. And Mm -hmm. a a lot of topic, you know, a lot of it is about how when men um, father daughters and how that changes their perspective. And again, this may be getting a little bit into philosophy corner, but I, I do often wonder, you know, what does it say about men to, to your mind? Um, that we can only, it, it seems like we can only personalize violence against women when it's like a blood relation, when it's a mother, a sister, a daughter, and mm-hmm. we don't think about women as human beings first, that we have to personalize it through family before we, it sort of opens our eyes. Yeah, I, I don't know that that says, I mean, to my mind, I don't know that it says that much about individual men as it does about the culture that we are all, right. you know, that we're all raised in and that we all engage in every day, right? Where, you know, misogyny is, it is in the water, it is in the air, we all imbibe it from the day that we are born and we don't, we don't escape that. Right. And so it's, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of swimming upstream to get to that point where, you know, you aren't just thinking about, you know, sort of women, you know, as people, but about, you know, women as a whole, as being equal to men. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think it I think it works the same way, you know, for things like uh, racism and, and homophobia. We, you know, grow up in these um, in these really oppressive systems. And we, I think, need to do a lot of, you know, conscious, mindful work to unlearn the things that we learn when when we're when we're children. Right. I think a lot about that. I think I was I think it was on Reddit. I was on the Ask Women subreddit. And somebody was asking about like concerns women have out in public, and 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 somebody said, when men get off the elevator on the same floor as me in like a hotel or some public space, mm. and they they the man like doesn't walk out first. That I I as the woman walk out first because then they can see where I'm going, mm. and that goes against you know what I was you know trained to do which is you know let you know the, this chivalrous thing like let the woman go first yeah. and it's it's i'm i'm cultured as a man to do this thing which yep. you know gives women certain status but as a woman they see it differently as like this is a, a warning sign of perhaps potential danger mm-hmm. and i mean it's those little things right that i'm i'm learning about all the time that seems normal to me that I was like sort of nurtured in and in culture acclimatized to in a culture that is completely different from a female perspective. Yeah, I, I think that that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, 
the the overwhelming majority of you know men who would find themselves in that position in an elevator aren't thinking about like that's right. I should let her go first so that I can track her movements and find out where she goes. Like that's, that's right. probably not something that would resonate with like <laughs> the majority of men. But you know, I I think I think you're exactly right that there is a there is a difference in the way that we are socialized to move through the world. Right. And unless you are actively trying to like, you know, widen the circle of your understanding and kind of look to other perspectives, you might not, you might not consider, you know, how your behavior might be perceived by somebody who's not at the same kind of social location as you. Right. But one thing I'll, I'll kind of add to that too, is that, you know, I think there is a, a, a sort of overrepresentation of women, you know, being unsafe in public when, you know, in in fact, the majority of instances of domestic violence, the majority of femicides, right. the majority of sexual assaults, these things happen in homes. They happen in our homes. They happen in the homes of people that we know. We are much less safe in private spaces than we are getting out of an elevator. And I think that's where the conversation needs to focus because, you know, we've, I think, relied a lot on narratives of stranger danger to try right. and keep women safe when the, you know, the, the narratives that we should be um, sort of explaining to people and, and, you know, the information that we should be sharing is that, you know, we have to talk about violence against women. We have to talk about gender-based violence with the men who are in our lives, our, our friends, our acquaintances, our family members, because these are the spaces in which this violence is most likely to occur. That's, an, that's another great segue to, to, to what you're talking about here, which is anytime we talk about safety, it's, it's a matter of public safety, of mm -hmm. like self-defense and being aware of your surroundings and these things. And mm -hmm. the vast majority of these instances of gender-based violence are incredibly private, which makes it sort of fundamentally hard, um, harder for women to report because of like presumptions and the uh, like ideas of like the perfect victim and, and things like that. Um, and, and we've, certainly seen like high profile ex examples of this but you know when it's two people behind closed doors despite everything we've learned it's still incredibly hard to to take a woman at her word that something bad happened yeah i i, I think that that's still you know really extremely and unfortunately true and i think the flip side of that too while we're talking about shifting perspectives is that you know if you are assaulted by somebody that you know, if you are assaulted by a friend, if you're assaulted by a family member, you know, if you are experiencing abuse at the hands of a family member or a partner, you know, what, like, what is your ideal outcome as somebody who has experienced that violence? Do you want your friend to go to prison? Right. Maybe you don't. Right. right? Maybe, maybe the carceral system isn't the best system that we have. Um, in which we can find justice for people who experience violence. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's, that's part of it too, is that uh, our justice system prizes itself on a lack of emotionness and a lack of sort of emotional investment. And um, these crimes we're talking about are, are deeply emotional because they're deeply personal and, and the, the victims and the perpetrators are often connected, whether that's through, you know, uh, marriage or a romantic connection or, or a, a cohabitational situation. Uh, it's the, the crimes are personal and then they yeah. go into this very clinical system. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, crime happens to people. Right. And when the systems that we use are not people-centered, mm. then you know, we we maybe shouldn't be too surprised that the the outcomes are are not, you know, maybe what we would wish them to be. Mm. Mm-hmm. I guess then my my question is um for people who are kind of still holding on to that system, and I guess I, I especially mean men. Um, sort of these old, old timey, old fashioned ideas about you know who is a victim, you know, believing women, and you know the fact that there are very few false reports, like almost minuscule number of false reports, mm-hmm. and even just like thinking about things differently and and being, I mean, in this era especially, it seems, and you know, you can see that on social media, there are a lot of people who are incredibly resistant to being a little more open minded about these things. So I, mm-hmm. I guess you know. Uh, how, how do we win the per, the persuasion efforts and, and how can we talk to people who are resistant to some, some of these ideas we're talking about? I think that, I think that the more that, you know, communities, um, I'm going to use the word, you know, kind of experiment, but I mean, that, that makes it sound, you know, a lot less well, well thought out right. than, than, than what I actually <laughs> mean to, to convey. But I think, you know, as, you know, when communities start to, um, you know, sort of really, I guess, interrogate ideas of what justice could look like, and when they start to, you know, maybe explore um, different avenues for justice, things like restorative justice, community-based initiatives, I think the more that people do that, um, and the more outcomes we see, the more data we have, the easier I think these conversations will go, because if we can look at, you know, maybe some cases and say, okay, well, like, you know, here's actually where um, we're seeing some positive results that, you know, we could have a little bit more sway because it's not like our current justice system is being particularly effective, Mm. either at keeping women and gender diverse people safe or at, you know, rehabilitating people who perpetrate, you know, domestic violence or sexual assault. It's not effective. So there's no reason to not explore alternatives because what we have is so broken. Right. Um, realizing i'm about to walk over your time but um maybe we could wrap up by uh giving some and again i'm incredibly grateful for all the time you've given me today but if if maybe we can give some people some strategies uh, you know for the next week if they're thinking about how they can combat gender-based violence in their lives and some of some of these issues you know how how can people do that yeah i i think honestly one of the best things that people can do is to talk about the issues. Um, there's a lot of research that demonstrates to us that, you know, people who um, abuse their partners, um, they consistently overestimate how common it is to abuse a partner. So they think it's okay because they think it's normal. So right. the more that people say, you know, this is not okay and this is not normal, the more we can change those attitudes and particularly because of, you know, the way that misogyny really permeates our, our culture, um, you know, men who abuse people are a lot more likely to hear that message when it comes from other men. So that's mm. something I think particularly that men can do is just have these conversations and to be, you know, sort of proactively looking for opportunities to have these conversations. So I think, you know, things that everybody can do are, you know, talk about healthy relationships with the young people in your life 
call somebody out if you hear, you know, somebody make a comment or a joke that, you know, devalues gender diverse people or that devalues women, you know, check, check in on somebody if you think that maybe something is not okay in their relationship, if you suspect there might be a little bit of abuse, a little bit of abuse, but if you suspect that right. there might be abuse, um, if you suspect that, you know, somebody's experiencing violence, ask if they're okay. And these things are really challenging to do, but there's something that we can do that is like within our circle of influence, right? If we think about, you know, how am I going to take the next week and end gender-based violence, <laughs> we will end up doing nothing because right. it's just so overwhelming. But if we think about what, you know, what is in our control to change, what is in our control to influence, we can, we can really get, get further ahead that way. All right. That's perfect. And uh, once again, Cindy McMahon, thank you so much for your time today. And um, I, I hope that we can all do maybe a, a little thing in all of our lives to to help turn things uh, into something more positive. But uh, I will let you go and uh, say uh, thanks again for, for all your expertise. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for the conversation. And once again, that was Cindy McMahon. You can learn all about Guelph Wellington Women in Crisis and their services at gwwomenincrisis.org. That's gwwomenincrisis, all one word, .org. And when you search out Women in Crisis on social media, which you can find at most addresses at gwwic, you will be able to engage with their 16 Days, 16 Voices campaign, which is a series of videos with local community leaders talking about ways to combat gender-based violence right here in Guelph. And so to mark December 6th locally, you do have a couple of options. The University of Guelph will be having a ceremony at the Adams Atrium in the Thornborough Building at 2.30 p.m. And then Women in Crisis will be hosting their annual vigil at Marianne's Park at 6.30 p.m. And that's it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast itself is usually recorded out of CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you'll get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media at Guelph Politico on Twitter and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all the information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out GuelphPolitico.ca, where we will have a new episode of the Guelph Politicast for you next week. And until then, we will see you next time.